Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thanks for being here as ever. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and all the rest. On today's show, the big question. Red for Arsenal and red for the Arsenal accounts, posting a loss for the first time since 2002. So on today's show, we're going to take an in-depth look into the accounts, into the finances. Why have we gone from posting a big profit to posting a fairly substantial loss? Where are we weak? Where could we improve? What does it mean for what we want to do this summer in terms of how we fund transfers and European football now that we don't have any this season, how much is that going to cost us? How much is it going to cost us next season if we don't have any European football at all? There is a lot to unpack, and we're going to do that very shortly with our first guest. A little bit later on, I'll be talking to James Benj from Football London. It's been mostly a good week for Arsenal on the pitch, beating Portsmouth, of course, in the FA Cup and going through to the FA Cup quarterfinals. That's good losing Lucas Torreira until probably next season because of a fractured ankle that's not good in fact that is pretty bad what's that going to do for Mikel Arteta's plans uh, between now and the end of the campaign as our only real defensive midfielder we are shorn of uh, a fairly important option in midfield so we'll talk a little bit later to James about that looking ahead to the West Ham game the Man City game of course uh, coming up next week too and how all that might go together but as I said The focus today is on the money, and last week Arsenal posted their financial results for the year ending 2018-19. The bad news is that the club has posted a loss for the first time in well over a decade, around £27 million. Uh, It's worth delving into this and looking at all the various aspects of Arsenal's finances because uh, it has a major impact on what we do and what we can do and what we might be able to do um, in in various aspects of the club, and who better uh, to talk us through all that than the man whose Twitter thread I'm sure you read. It's Kieran O'Connor, better known as Swiss Ramble. Hi, Kieran. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? Good. Thank you very much. Let's just start at the the, the bottom line figure here. Um, Arsenal posting a, a loss uh, after tax of £27 million pounds, uh, from the previous year, uh, making a £70 million pound profit. So we have an, an almost £100 million pound swing what is the what are the key drivers behind that and and you know um is that as bad as it looks from a, a layman's point of view yeah it's pretty bad um <laughs> in fact the 27 million loss that you mentioned is um after tax so it's net of a 5 million tax credit before tax um it's even worse it's 32 million 
Um, as you say, that was down from a 70 million profit the year before. Um, so it's just north of 100 million deterioration in just 12 months. Um, there is one overriding reason for that swing, um, which is one-off profit on player sales. Um, so the previous year that was um, spectacularly high. That was 120 million. That was a year when we um, sold Theo, the Ox, um, Giroud, mm. uh, Sanchez, etc. And um, last year we sold hardly anyone and only made 12 million profit. So there's 108 million decline right there, which pretty much explains the year-on-year -year move. Um, you asked how bad it is. So, yeah, it's the first time that Arsenal um, have actually made a loss since 2002, so that's 17 years. Um, it, 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 in some ways, it's not as bad as it could be. If you look at um, the rest of the Premier League, um, two clubs in 2019 so far um, have recorded losses of over 100 million, namely Chelsea and Everton. So if you look at it as a comparison, it's not, um, it's not as bad as them. Um, however, um, it is bad for Arsenal because we run a sustainable model. Um, that model has worked well for many years, um, but it has been very dependent on a number of factors. Mm. One of them, um, as I say, is the other player sales. Um, but the other one is Europe. And um, we have slipped out of the far more lucrative Champions League into the Europa League. Um, and this is bad. It's a bit of a double whammy, really, because um, not only do we receive less money, but other clubs are, are sort of direct competition at the top of the Premier League. Mm. They get a lot more. So, you know, everything's relative. Um, maybe I'll just put a couple of numbers um, you know, on that to give it some context. So, sure. um, Arsenal got about 34 million from the Europa League and you know we got to, we got to the final and didn't really turn up against Chelsea but we got as far as we could go in that tournament and got 34 million if you contrast that with the English representatives in the Champions League um, United Man United and Manchester City um, got to the quarterfinals so not so far um, but they got just over 80 million pounds right. they got more than twice as much and um, Liverpool um, got to the final. They got about a hundred million. Um, somebody else also got there. Um, got ninety million. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you know, it allows it allows others um, to pull ahead. The, I mean, some of the figures are, are, are kind of remarkable. And you talked about that other team that got to the uh, Champions League final last season. And uh, it was a glorious night in wherever the hell the final was. Um, uh, but I, I really enjoyed that game because Liverpool stopped the most disgusting thing that I could think of happening. Um, but, you know, is is a big revenue driver for, for Tottenham. Um, you know, it was amazing to, to look at some of the figures that you posted um, off the back of a comment that Arsenal are the only big six club to see revenue fall in the mm. last two years. And the sort of thing that struck me um, 
like hard in the face was the fact that three years ago Arsenal um, had a surplus over Tottenham of uh, 141 million pounds in terms of revenue, and now Tottenham are ahead of Arsenal by something like 56 or, or 65 million pounds. 65, yeah. 65. So look, there's um, a turnaround of over uh, 200 million pounds in a very short space of time, and. That's, you know, leaving aside the rivalry aspect of it, which, of course, is, is uh, you know, something we find a little bit hard to do anyway. But just, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, that is an astonishing turnaround. Um, and one, I suppose, that will uh, be worrying, particularly, I know Tottenham will have repayments on the new stadium, but they now have a big new stadium with lots mm. lots of extra seats and lots of, uh, lots of, lots of extra tickets to sell. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point because one of the things that um, helped Arsenal maintain a competitive advantage in terms of revenue was the move to the Emirates. I mean, um, I'm a fairly old guy, so I, I loved Highbury. That was my my home, but financially the mm. move to the Emirates made a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, we've been um, generating around $100 million in match day revenue since then. Um, but the others are beginning to catch up, so they're eroding that advantage. Um, so Liverpool have been quite cute and quite smart in expanding Anfield. Um, their match day revenue now is up, it's well over 80 million. Um, Spurs the same, so you know that, that gap has, has, has closed. Um, the other area, which has always been Arsenal's Achilles heel, in my opinion, is, is commercial. Mm. Um, so, um, and, and I think this is, I mean, you're right, Tottenham have overtaken us in, in revenue terms and given the Champions League money, that sort of makes sense. Um, the thing that I, I find particularly disappointing, given that Arsenal had many years of success where we were clearly the, the top club in London, is, is commercial. Mm. Um, so, our commercial revenue is um, 111 million this year. It went up just 4 million. Um, it, it, it's miles behind United, um, who are 275 million, um, and a fair way behind Liverpool and um, Chelsea, which is just over 180. But it's also um, just over 20 million behind Spurs, 134. Um, now, the thing about commercial income is it's a bit of an arms race. Um, so you have clubs um, getting new shirt sponsorship deals and um, kit supply deals at different times. So, you know, what looks really awful one year might look a, a lot better the next year. And, yeah. You know, one of the things, and, and you know, <laughs> I've tried hard to look for grains of encouragement because I... Uh, you know, probably depressed the hell out of most gooners on you know, Monday morning, for which I apologise. Um, but next year, um, we do have our two main new deals coming into play, um, in, in, you know, financially. So um, Adidas, um, they replaced Puma yeah. uh, for this this, um, this season. Uh, the money's doubled from 30 million to 60 million. So a 30 million increase right there. And the Emirates deal has been extended. Um, so, based on media reports, and you know, take those slightly with a pinch of salt, but that's up 10 million. So, our commercial is going to go up 40 million. Great. 
Mm. Um, but if nothing else changes, that takes our 111 up to 151 million. Um, it's still, you know, way behind um, Liverpool um, and Chelsea. Yeah. And it's just a little bit ahead of Spurs. So it, it, it's not great. I think no. that the structure of some of the commercial deals could be a lot better. Um, the Emirates deal bundles in naming, naming rights. So you, you can look at that a couple of ways. Either the naming rights have been given away for virtually nothing, um, or the naming rights are, are worth a bit, in which case the shirt sponsorship doesn't look so good against the other clubs. And mm. um, we're also not allowed to sign training kit deals. And, you know, if you look at clubs like Liverpool and others, they've been quite innovative here and have sort of got add-ons. They've got training kit deals. United have, have got naming rights for the, the, the training ground. Um, and, and I think over the years, and, and a number of people like me have been banging this drum for probably far too long, um, it, it hasn't got a great deal better. No, I mean, just, just to sort of um, put those figures in a little bit of context again, you say, um, that Arsenal's commercial revenue has been flat over the last four years, only up eight eight million. While in the same period, it's grown somewhere between 70, 72 and seventy eight million. At United, Tottenham, Liverpool, and Chelsea. And I think we can see there's a common denominator there in that in that those clubs um, do have Champions League football. But at yeah. the same time, you know, Arsenal also had Champions League football in that period. And I think we can all understand how it's very difficult if you're playing Europa League football against the likes of Bate Borisov and Karabag and, you know, some of those teams that you play in the group stages. It's very difficult to sell blue chip, um, you know, hospitality packages and commercial packages and, and executive boxes and all that kind of stuff. We get that. But it feels like this has been an issue that's go that goes back some time for Arsenal in terms of the commercial deals that we do going back to you know when Ivan Gazidis was chief executive when when Vinay uh, Venkatesham who is now the managing director was the head of the commercial department that at a time when Arsenal did have Champions League football where they were playing blue chip games against the biggest opposition in Europe unfortunately often going out in the first knockout round uh, every time we got Barcelona or Bayern Munich that's a separate thing but, but it was you know would it be fair to say that we didn't make the most of our stature as a club during that period? Yeah, I, I think it was a wasted opportunity. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think um, we've missed our chance in a number of areas. One of them is, is definitely commercial. I mean, we know that um, our commercial deals were held back for many years because they were linked to funding um, for the Emirates. Mm. Stadium, um, but but there, there was still a chance um, after those were extended to to do better. And I, I think you know I, I've mentioned that the sort of headline major deals, but where we've really done poorly, in my opinion, compared to others, is the secondary sponsors. Um, and and you know that 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 really is is just can be seen in the numbers. Is, um, are, are those the kind of deals that we sort of, you know, have a little bit of a laugh at because, yeah. you know, it's Man United's washing machine uh, sponsor in Singapore yeah. and it's, our, you know, it's our Korean noodle partner, partner yeah. or whatever it might be. You know, all these smaller ancillary deals that, you know, while they might not be massive on their own rights, if you do enough of them, they generate you a lot of money. Yeah, exactly right. And um, I think United are, are quite interesting commercially. I mean, they, they've led the way 
um, in many aspects. Um, their performance on the pitch, of course, has, has not been great either. Um, and over the last couple of years, their commercial income has been flat. Um, but, you know, they got to 275 million. And as, as you know, there's an old investment book that says that elephants don't gallop. And, and <laughs> that's sort of where they are. I mean, I think we'd be quite happy to get to 275 million. Sure. Um, but I, I think that the, the sort of the, the management at Arsenal, the, the sort of executive management, has been lacking in a number of areas. Um, I mean, we still have this bundle of cash. Um, and, and, you know, that went down. It went down from about 230 million the previous year, which was our all time high, um, to about 167 million. Um, there, is a, there is a reason for that, which is that Europa, Europa League final. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, that took place the day after these accounts closed. So it delayed the season ticket renewals. So the, the cash figure would have been even higher. Um, but it, 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 it's not being used well. And, and um, I mean, I hate to bring him up, your friend and mine, Ivan Gazidis, um, <clears throat> with <laughs> one of his um, great quotes about keeping the powder dry. Um, but, you know, that, that I think is our, has, has been our biggest missed opportunity because, you know, seven, eight years ago, we had so much cash compared to the rest of the Premier League that we could have blown clubs out of the water, really, um, when bidding for players. But and then we by the time overly we, cautious. And by the time we started buying players, the cash didn't go anywhere near as far as it might have done because the transfer market had become so inflated because of, you know, deals like Neymar and and Mbappe and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, look, uh, let's touch on Ivan Gazidis in a in a general sense. Um, you know. Would it be reasonable to suggest that if um, the the footballing side of Arsenal needed to be restructured and and we have you know now a, a different kind of structure than we did when Arsene Wenger was there? So there's a, a head of football now in Raul Sanyehi. Uh, there's a technical director in Edu. You know we have this more modern football setup. Gazidis was supposed to be the businessman. He was supposed mm. to be the guy who was in charge of the non-football things at Arsenal. So the commercial department would have been, you know, a, a fairly major part of his his uh, responsibility. Um, you know, we, we, I, you know, I can't speak for anyone else. I, I have my concerns about the football executives uh, who are running things at this moment in time. Um, some of the decisions that they made have, have um, frustrated me, it would be fair to say. But I wonder if that, business side of the club is something which still requires uh, a look in that we don't re I mean we have Vinay there and I don't you know he's he's got his background in business and, and commercial and all that kind of stuff but you know from everything that you're saying it does feel like we could use somebody in that role or you know in that area of the club we've got the football side we've put a lot of focus on that but the business side whether we like it or not these days is a major major part of how football clubs operate so you know is there a need perhaps to to look at restructuring that side of things as well I think that would help. Um, the, the reality with a football club now, though, is that the business side and the sporting side are um, interconnected. I mean, you said it yourself earlier that it's difficult to, to secure good commercial deals 
if you're not playing in the Champions League. Mm. That's where people want to be. So the, the, the Champions League um, provides direct money and a lot of it. Um, but what it also does is provide indirect money from gate receipts, um, hospitality, um, commercial deals. So, um, yes, um, I think there is room for improvement. Um, but I think it, it, it would be a difficult challenge for most people coming in now mm. because the, pr the product, if I can put it that way, that they're selling is not as attractive as it was five years ago. Sure, yeah. So you've got to get the football right again to drive the commercial side of things rather than the commercial side of things or the business side of things, providing the, the sort of money that, that the football uh, side might need to improve. Um, let me ask you this. Arsenal um, went out of the Europa League uh, last week to Olympiacos, a, a pretty disappointing result after what was, you know, a, a fairly positive start to Mikel Arteta's reign. This was, you know, the first real bump on the road for him. Um, we can chat a bit later about the football side of it, but what what is the impact financially of not being in the, the Europa League uh, for the rest of this season? And... You know, the the prospect of Arsenal not having any Europa League or any European football next season is not a remote one. You know, no. league performance has to improve and we do have an avenue into it via the FA Cup, but that's, you know, that's still uh, three games away from from winning that and getting into the Europa League. And there are a number of games to go in the Premier League, of course, but consistency has been an issue. So it's not set in stone that Arsenal will have European football uh, next year. I know Vinay said um, quite recently that being out of the Champions League costs us tens and tens of millions of pounds every year. And that's, you know, we're seeing now with the results that that's not really sustainable. Um you know, what's the impact for this season and, and how bad would it be from a financial point of view next season for Arsenal not to have European football, even if some people might make a case that, you know, on the pitch, it might be beneficial for us to sort of be out of that that sort of that grind. The fewer fixtures we have, the more we could focus on the Premier League and making improvement in that regard. Yeah, so um, I, I, I ran some numbers on this. I've, I've got a little model. Um, for European competition, because it, it's it's horribly complex um, how UEFA distribute the money. They split it between participation, prize money. Um, they've introduced this thing called the UEFA coefficient based on 10-year ranking in Europe. Um, and then they have the TV pool, um, which, again, is split into two mm. um, based on performance previous season's domestic league and this season's European tournament. Anyway, the upshot of, of, of my model, which um, could be wrong, but um, uh, I think it's probably reasonable, I reckon we'll get about £19 million TV money um, compared to the £34 million I mentioned for 18-19. So that's a drop of £15 million right off the bat. And just to put that um, in perspective, Mesut Ozil earns 18 million pounds a year from, from our yeah. so yeah. you know I mean that's quite a good way of looking at it in terms of players you yeah know, you, know, it's sort of like, you know difference between that is, is one player you know in Champions League to, to to Europa League is 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 probably four decent players um, so um, yeah so that's, that's 15 billion we also got the issue with the match day money yes um, so Arsenal have this season ticket assumes a minimum of cup 
home games. Um, and going out to Olympiacos means that uh, we're not going to make that minimum. We're going we're gonna to drop a game. Um, so you could estimate that at about four and a half million. That's just um, for one game. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I mean, it's partly the sort of average. It's partly the European hospitality. Um, so, you know, we, we're going to lose money. We're going to lose that money, um, definitely. Um, the other thing that is, is less visible is what it means for the commercial deals, because most of the sponsorship agreements will have clauses that either mean you don't hit the full value of the contract if you're not in the Champions League or you're not in the Europa League, mm. or there's a deduction. Um, I mean, United's, um, United's um, commercial deal quite, is quite well known that um, you know, they will lose 30% of that if they are out of the um, Champions League for more than two years in a row. Um, so I, I think that's probably quite high compared to most clauses because United's um, deal is, is really high as a, as a sort of base point. Um, but, you know, it is likely that um, there'd be a little bit um, coming off commercial. Um, I think that some of it um, will already have, have come with the movement from Champions League to, to Europa League. But, you know, you, you could probably say it's about all in all, uh, twin, let's say 30 million. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's a lot of money. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the follow-up, of course, is if, if we don't manage to qualify for Europe, um, then, you know, you, you lose the bit that you've got, the sort of 19, 20 million that I'm estimating. Um, you'd also um, presumably lose a lot more on, on the match day um, because the, the sort of cup games, I mean, we could have lengthy runs in the um, FA Cup and, and, and Carabao Cup, um, but I'm not sure whether they, they have the sort of glamour and the same price points as playing in Europe. Um, so, yeah, it, it's really important. Um, I mean, people sort of talk about the, the Europa League and saying, well, you know, it's not that great a competition. Um, but I think from the point of view of, of, of sponsors, um, playing in Europe is, is, is better than, than, than not doing that. I mean, the other side of that coin is, is what happens to your costs. Um, because uh, the players will have bonuses um, uh, which are linked to European qualifications. So you would expect you would expect those to go down, but um, you know, football is 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 a sort of funny game in that sense. So mm. um, good agents might manage to say, well, you know, it's not really my players' fault we haven't qualified others. Yeah. So it's not necessarily as, as direct a relation as, as you might think. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that brings us on to wages, I guess, because. I don't know if this was the assumption or, or just because Arsenal were a Champions League club for so long, the idea of Arsenal being out of the Champions League for an extended period didn't really... I don't know whether it um, was something that the club itself considered on a, on a uh, substantial basis because, you know, at the bottom, uh, at the heart of it, really, we are a Europa League club and potentially not a Europa League club next season, but we are a club that's paying... Champions League wages to a lot of players. Um, 
you know, Ozil, Aubameyang on massive money. Mkhitaryan mm-hmm. was on huge money before he left. And I know that there's been a, a fair um, shake-up in the squad, but a lot of those players are on contracts that came around the time that Arsenal were uh, a Champions League club. Um, how is that going to be uh, affecting, uh, you know, things going forward or, or, or what the club has to do or how it's going to restructure? And I, I want to keep this a little bit slightly separate from transfers because that's the next mm. horror show I want to ask you about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's interesting. I mean, Josh Kroenke said that... Um, we have a Champions League wage bill on the Europa League budget. Um, and and in, with some players, as you mentioned, that's clearly the case. But as a whole, I'm not sure it is, um, because our wage bill is about 230 million. Um, but if you look at the other um, English clubs, we're, we're quite a fair way behind. So United's 100 million higher, 330. City's 315. Liverpool 310 and Chelsea 200 and, and 286. Mm. Um, Spurs, um, we don't have the figure for this year. Year before was 148, so they're, they're a bit of an outlier. I, I expect that to go up. Um, but but my, my point is this, that although our wage bill is now quite high for the revenue that we have, it's not high compared to our main rivals in England. Um, so... And, and, you know, given the revenue pressures that we might have if we don't um, qualify for Europe, then it's unlikely to go up. It's more likely to go down. And that means that it's more difficult to attract top players. And then there's a risk of the gap on the pitch um, getting worse. You know, unless, and and we'll probably get the ball out in a moment, but um, the... I mean, this is my sort of big hope. This is where I am optimistic, um, is, that I, I, is that we start or we continue to bring through the younger players, which has been the best part of this season so far for me. Mm. I'm seeing some of these hail-end products on the pitch. Um, and it's it sort of, you know, reminiscent a bit of when, you know, George Graham came in and um, he had a whole bunch of um, guys coming up from the youth team. Um, and we, we might be doing, we might be sort of forced to do this, but it's it's possibly no bad thing. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that it does is allows you to build your squad or fill out your squad in a, I guess, a fairly cheap way in comparison to to working the transfer market. And the other thing that we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast before is that, you know, if you if you give chances to young players and they they get to a certain level but don't quite have what it takes you know, to kick on by, by virtue of giving them experience and playing time, you make them a more valuable asset uh, in the transfer market. So you, you, you generate more money from your academy from within. So it's, I'm not saying it's pure profit because you've invested time, you've invested money and wages and everything else in the player. But you know, a guy who plays a hundred games for you, like Ainsley Maitland-Niles is worth an awful lot more than a guy who plays five games for you. And you know, someone like the Jeff, you know, who who went for a million pounds and then was sold for 20-odd million pounds because he's a very good player. Um, and he got some playing time, which allowed people to see that he's a very good player. But, but transfers are obviously something that 
you know, we all look at and we, we, we look at this squad and we can see gaps and we can see where there are issues with quality and we can see where, where you know, we can see basically that this is a, a team that needs to be rebuilt. Um, it feels like we've been saying that for quite a while, but there we are. You know, the financial reality, you know, based on everything that you're saying is that, that funds will be uh, relatively limited um, it's difficult to see Arsenal splashing out the 60-odd million pounds that they spent on Aubameyang, for example. That kind of a transfer seems um, a little bit unrealistic, even though, you know, we spent 72 million pounds on Pepe and the jury is yeah. out on whether that was money well spent or not. But but how much do you think, based on some of the things that have happened before, so I'm thinking of Aaron Ramsey leaving for free and Danny yeah. Welbeck leaving for free, you know, players who, if even if they've been sold with 12 months to go, would have generated, you know, 50 million pounds between them, maybe a bit more. Um, how much do you think the financial reality of, of what we're seeing right now will have an impact on this summer's transfer business? And I'm not necessarily talking about players coming in. I'm talking about some of the decisions that the club will have to make uh, with with players in the final year of their contract. So we've got Socrates, we've got Mustafi. Um, I, I don't think there'll be too many people crying uh, tears if, if either of those or both of those were sold, um, particularly as neither of them, I don't think, uh, have done enough to, to merit a new contract. Mesut Ozil is a special case. You know, his agent says he's staying, you know, to the end of his contract and probably beyond somehow. Um, but but Aubameyang and mm. Lacazette, like, if we can't give Aubameyang Champions League football and he's got 12 months left on his deal, there doesn't seem any way to me that we can just, say, keep him for the goals that he will score. We're going to have to, you know, let business drive the decision-making here as hard yeah. as it will be for us, uh, you know, as fans to let go of a, let go or, or see a player like him go because he's so good and so important. But, I mean, it just it feels like there's no way we can we can just avoid the fact that we have to get money for him and, and yeah. use that money to, to try and re rebuild as cleverly as we can. Well, I, I think that's right. And, and um, there's obviously two sides, the transfer market, there's, there's buying players. And um, we've actually spent quite a lot of money in recent years. Um, you know, it's just under 400 million in the last three seasons. Um, we haven't necessarily spent it particularly well, but mm. we have spent it. Um, but we, we've also sold quite badly. Um, contract management, I think, is difficult. Um, and, and people will say, um, you know, we can't afford to let people run their contracts down as Ramsey and, and, and Welbeck did. Um, we have to move them on after 12 months. But yeah, sometimes it's easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, you can't just you know push someone out the door with a with a huge price tag on his, his forehead. But we, we, we should try to do it. Um, I I remember um, you and I had a conversation a couple of years ago when we were in a similar situation with uh, with Özil before mm. he renewed his contract and Sanchez at the time, and you asked me what I would do, and I said I'd sell both of them um, because the financial risks that came with not doing that, not taking that action, um, were, were so so high and, you know, that pretty much came to pass. Yeah. Um, I, I would be really surprised if Arsenal didn't sell 
um, at least one of Obama, Yang, and Lacazette. Um, I, I could never quite understand why we bought both of them in the first place, to be honest, but given their contractual issues, and also given the, the, the other fact you mentioned, which is the player himself might say, you know, another year without Champions League, I'm not getting any younger, I, I, I really should move, might sort of force them. But then you start saying, Obama Yang is on a huge whack, um, and he's... I don't know how old he is, but he's, he's not a spring chick. He's 30, so he's going to be 31 in the summer. Yeah. So, so are they, is there really going to be a queue of clubs that want to buy him? Barcelona? Um, yeah, they could. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you have to maybe sometimes look at clubs that have a fair bit of money and, and, and also buy badly. Yeah. Um, so they would be pretty high on my list. <laughs> yes. Um, and from us a few times. Exactly. You think of some of the, some, some of the deals we've done there. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that we, we have to sort of look at that. And, and you'd have to hope that the structure that we have put in place with the likes of um, San Leahy and Edu, um, this is where they really have to earn their core in, in the transfer market because – Recruitment is, is critical. Selling is critical. Mm. Um, and they, their advantage um, is theoretically that they have a good contact book. I'll say no more than that. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and this is where it should, it should help. Um, but I, I think that selling players is about selling people at the sort of top end um, but also, actually, people like Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Um, and I quite like him as a player, actually. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm not sure he's Arteta's cup of tea. And he's got to the point with, you know, a, a lot of games under his belt um, that you could probably get, you know, decent sum for him. Um, and just look at it that way, because uh, we've got a lot of good players coming through the academy. And, and you know, if someone is a sort of got a question mark against him, then... You know, maybe we need to be a little bit more ruthless. Mm. In in terms of recruitment, then you know the the, the Pepe thing was astonishing and surprising mm. and exciting, and and you know everybody was slightly taken aback by the fact that you know a we got this player who was so highly coveted, but but that we you know done a. 72 million pound deal for him you know uh, however that deal is structured and whoever the middleman was who might have got you know a, a few quid for his uh, for his um, help in making it happen you know this sort of agent inspired agent inspired is not the right word but like agent influenced transfer mm. strategy that we seem to have at this moment in time like the links between uh, Pablo Marie and his agents and Raul Sanyehi going back to the Neymar deal at Barcelona and Cedric who has been brought in because he's a client of Kia Jurabchian. And, um, you know, the, the, it feels like those guys are going to have a, a fair influence over what we do now. If they can bring us some good players, you know, uh, you think of Martinelli, for example, who's mm. who's been a great, a great signing and a great value mm. signing, you know, uh, Pablo Marie, we don't know a great deal about. He made his debut on Monday night. He looked pretty good, but of course yeah, it was just right. yeah, he looked good, but it was Portsmouth, you know, in the FA yeah, Cup, and you know he's got to be tested. But but it feels like maybe those kind of deals are the ones that we're going to have to do. So you know, if we need a, a backup right back, it's going to be Cedric, who's coming on loan. Uh, the loan doesn't make a lot of sense right now because he arrived injured. But if he's on loan, 
um, with a view to signing him on a free transfer because he's out of contract this summer with, with Southampton, then it makes a lot more sense. The same thing with, with Flamengo. I think the deal with, with Pablo Marie is going to be made permanent. So you've brought in a centre half and a, a right back, um, given them some time to bed in and you haven't spent a huge amount of money. But it does feel like, you know, if we are going to spend money uh, to, to have money to, or sell to have money to spend, we're, we're going to have to spend it pretty cleverly uh, and try and bring in players who who are not going to be at that top end of the market. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and um, there was an interview with Arteta um, a few days ago, which I found quite interesting. And he, he said that Arsenal, as you would expect, or at least hopeful, are already planning um, for the, the transfer window, but under a number of scenarios. So one scenario is that the sort of blue sky, uh, we somehow sneak into the Champions League. Another one is we qualify for the Europa League, and another one is we're out of Europe altogether. Mm. Um, so it, it gave me some encouragement that at least they're thinking about it, and, and um, some encouragement that they will address it the right way. Um, and, and you know, because Arteta came in halfway through the season, um, he's sort of working very, very largely with um, players that have been bought in by others. Um, so this is his opportunity. Um, he, he doesn't feel like, to me like he's the sort of guy that would actually want to splash an enormous amount on one star player, um, but more get someone a bit younger mm. that he can develop and, and can play the way he wants to. It, yeah, I mean, it feels like that's kind of the right way for Arsenal to go in the circumstances that we find ourselves in at this moment in time, doesn't it? It just sort of, yeah. it's sort of, we've done the star thing, you know, we've done the Ozil thing, the Alexis thing, mm. the Aubameyang thing, and to varying degrees, <clears throat> they've worked, but also left us with some difficult situations to manage. Whereas if now we have to sort of step back and go, okay, let's go at this a slightly different way. It does feel like in the, in the context of, you know, Arteta coming in and, and um, you know, being a, an inexperienced manager, but but being willing to sort of take on this project to rebuild, that those sort of signings might just fit better than going out and splashing the cash on a, a superstar. Yeah, no, and, and I think in a way it's sort of going back to the sort of traditions at Arsenal. Um, you know, I mean, I've been following Arsenal since well, 1970, um, which will tell you, you know, just how old I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, for, for the, the first sort of period of my Arsenal following, um, we never really spent a huge amount of money on anyone. Um, and then you know, following the move to Emirates, we had a lot of money, but we still didn't really. Um, and we, we then started to invest in players like Sanchez and Ozil. And, and, you know, briefly, it sort of worked quite well. I mean, the, the first year or two of both of those guys um, was pretty impressive. Um, but it, it, I don't think it's ever been um, part of our culture as a club that we've been particularly comfortable with. And, and the last three years, we've done it you know, fairly badly. Mm. Um, so, I, in a way, um, going back to our roots would, would um, it, I think it's definitely the right thing to do financially. Um, and it might actually pay dividends on, on the pitch as well. Mm. I mean, you talk about going back to our roots, you know, and, and I think that's something we can all identify with. But, you know, 
the roots that were put down are now a tree that's you know managed from Delaware and Denver and LA and everything else with with, with KSE. Um, you know, can they? marry that idea of what the Arsenal culture is in terms of squad building? I mean, does it does it fit with what they do? I mean, have you been in any way encouraged by the increased presence of Josh Kroenke, who, um, you know, we, we one of the big complaints, of course, about Stan was that he's an, an absentee landlord. Um, and that was something that I think uh, fans were critical of. You know, you can own the club, but you're not really that interested in it. So what we have now is the son of Stan, and he is seemingly a lot more interested. He's over quite a lot more. He's over a great frequency. He was at the Portsmouth game the other night, you know, so it's not just a, you know, turning up and sitting in, in the director's box and leaving at halftime because it's too cold as his dad did once. You know, he does seem to be a bit more hands-on. He seems to want to know and to understand, you know, w- w- what what Arsenal's about and, and to maybe try and fix some of the problems that we have. Should we be encouraged by that that uh, that presence at least even if of course there's a, a lot still to prove yeah I think there is some cause for optimism there um, and he, he's, he's definitely more visibly present um, I mean, he was particularly present around the time of the, the transfer window um, where I think it's fairly clear that um, the tax will loosen to an extent to bring in players I mean the 70 odd million on Pepe, that that came as a real certainly a surprise to me. There was a, there was um, there was a hint, wasn't there, that that you know how did the the deal get done? And he sort of said something along the lines of, "Well, you know, I'll, no, I'll leave it to your imagination." But the the the, the inference was that KSE had helped um, facilitate that deal. Yeah, and and, and um, we don't really sort of um, know whether that's the case until this year's accounts. Uh, where they've actually provided tangible help, um, I, I'd be a bit surprised to be honest. I don't think it's it's necessary, right? Um, but if if um, if they have, then then fine. Um, I, I I do think that we have owners that um, will not put a huge amount of money in, if anything at all, um, and what they will probably be looking at is Liverpool, um, where their American owners, um, FSG, John Henry, mm. um, they, they put a little bit of money, they put in a, a loan of just over a hundred million. That was for a very specific purpose, um, extending their main stand. And they've not really sort of put in money for anything else. But um, I think Liverpool have become the club that, that we are going to have to copy um, in terms of strategy because they are a club that have done really well in the transfer market. They've um, sold well. That's their thing. They, That's they as you go back. Well. And, 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 I mean, they, they, they timed the sale of Coutinho and the amount they got mm. for him absolutely perfectly. Um, you know, Barca, they'd lost Neymar. They, they needed to get some glamour and, and, and Liverpool pounds, really. Mm. And then having got that money, um, they basically used it to bring in Van Dijk and, and Alisson, um, who were the sort of two linchpins on which they bought their success. I mean, they got a good front three, but mm. um, I don't think they'd have done it without without that. So 
and, and, and Liverpool were a bit like Arsenal a few years ago. They hadn't sort of um, been in Europe for a while, not the Champions League. Um, so they, they've proved that it can be done. Um, but and, and now financially they look fantastic. Um, but it's been it's it's sort of followed success on the pitch. So um, you know I, I wouldn't want to be all doom and gloom because there are recent examples that show that you can go from a situation very much like ours and in two or three years' time it it look an awful lot better. Mm. Well, hopefully, hopefully, um, it just feels like every time we have this chat, it just gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse. But, uh, you know, on that, we, we come back to what happens on the pitch and taking your taking your financial hat off and putting your your um, Arsenal beanie hat that you would have gotten your membership pack on. <laughs> how, how are you feeling about what's going on under Mikel Arteta having... You know, seeing the end of the Arsene Wenger era, and and obviously what happened with Unai Emery, you know, this season we we found ourselves in a an unprecedented position in terms of you know league position, games without wins, you know, mm. results, performances, really really tanked in a, in a big way, and it was it was very difficult, you know, even if um you whatever you think about Unai Emery or whatever, it's just not nice to see your football club um in that kind of a, a situation. How, how do you feel about you know, Arteta coming back and the work that he's doing so far, are you encouraged by what you've seen? Yeah, I, I'm very positive on him. I, and, and I think given the situation we're in, um, that it, it's absolutely the right move to get a young coach um, with ideas and a strategy. Um, I mean, what, what I can see now is evidence of a plan and, and um, tactics and good coaching um, individual players have improved. Um, I mean, even Mustafi, um, who, who, who was pretty much a walking disaster <laughs> under Emery. Um, and and he, he still clearly has a Rick in him. Um, yeah. But um, on the whole, his, his, dis- his displays have improved um, enormously. Um, I think other players, uh, David Luiz, um, clearly has transformed. Um, the young players are reacting well to him. Um, I think he needs a, a good pre-season to sort of get his ideas fully um, there. I mean, he, he came in on the back of that quite hideous run, which oh. was so depressing. And um, and at the worst time, you know, the the festive period where it's yeah. just basically game, recover, game, recover, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, have another drink to, to sort of forget that performance. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could. Well, it looked like they did as well, in fairness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it was uh, really not good. Um, but I, I am encouraged. Um, I think that what he's focused on is the defence. Um, we've actually had a, a couple of clean sheets, which is, is good to see. I mean, I was brought up on 1-0 to the Arsenal, so I'm always <laughs> happy to see that. Um I think attacking-wise, um, it'll take him a while to, to sort it out and sort out who he wants to play where. Um, I mean, it is a bit of a puzzle to me when you look at the team sheet and you see, well, there's there's Aubameyang, there's Lacazette, there's Pepe, um, you know, there's Ozil. Um, surely there's goals in this team. Mm. Um, but that, that has seemed to be our problem. But I think a new coach coming in, they, they, they sort of, you know, make sure the back door is locked and then they start, you know, looking ahead. 
Um, but I, I'm, I'm quite positive and, uh, about him, and um, I think it was the right move. Um, I think it was the right move a bit too late. Yeah. I mean, if he'd come in half a dozen games earlier, um, I think some of our concerns about qualifying for Europe would not uh, would maybe be less. I can't disagree with that, I have to say. Uh, but look, it's all ahead of him and it's all ahead of us, and we'll see what happens on the pitch. And of course, uh, every time something happens on the balance sheets, you'll be there to uh, deliver the bad news in, in a lovely way, though. So uh, <laughs> I thank you as ever for, for being here. A pleasure to talk to you, Kieran. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Kieran is on Twitter at Swiss Ramble. If you're not following already, do it right now. And of course, he looks at Arsenal finances with his Arsenal supporters hat on, but applies his uh, forensic financial expertise uh, to football in general, lots of other clubs as well. It's always very interesting reading. So do follow Kieran. He is at Swiss Ramble. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, joining me now on the podcast, delighted to welcome back from Football London, James Bench. Hello, James. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thank you very much. I'm fine. You're fine. Lucas Torreira is not fine. Um, Arsenal very casually (laughs) releasing the news that he suffered a fractured ankle in the FA Cup game against Portsmouth. We saw the pictures. We saw him leave the ground on on crutches and in a protective boot. But I think this has probably shaken our faith in Lucas Torreira's dad. Who, who told us that he was going to be fine. Well, he told ESPN Uruguay he, he was fine. Um, a, a sad, unfortunate injury for Torreira and a, a blow for him and a blow for Mikel Arteta between now and the end of the season. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially for, for Torreira because uh, he, he kind of had such a weird second season where, you know, obviously for a long time, and I kind of liked the idea at first, but uh, Emery pushing him further forward just didn't work. He was getting quite unhappy at Arsenal. And then, even though he was a bit out of the team under Arteta and the ceballos Jacker pairing was working quite well, you could just you could see Torreira slotting back in eventually. I mean, particularly, you look at like next week with the game against Man City, that's exactly the sort of game where I don't want to play Xhaka and Ceballos. Mm. I need Torreira in that midfield. And I mean, look, I know it's, it's League One and it's a tough tackle and, you know, Portsmouth are going out to assert themselves on Arsenal and that's what you would want your team to do in that scenario. But 
it was really clumsy and out of control and hitting him with, with two legs. I, afterwards, he was sort of saying, this is a good tackle. This was a good tackle. And sort of like, you've seen the guy uh, get stretched off the pitch. You've seen him hobble out of Fratton Park, which seems like the worst place in the world to try and leave on crutches because you've got to go up this slippery staircase on, on the way out of the ground. Mm. Come out and say it's a good tackle. I'm sorry, it just isn't. I know that you know you can't always control what happens to the opponent, but if if you're getting in a position where his ankle might be broken, you've done something really badly wrong. And I think you know there's, there's no point getting on on a high horse about it, but it's it's really frustrating to sort of see that 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 that, that sort of tackle is just allowed to pass by in the game. That, that you know there's a sort of oh well done, mate, good good tackle and Mike Dean isn't really doing anything to say you know look obviously we understand you want to go in and assert yourself on Arsenal but you can't do that you can't you can't go in with reducers big Mm. shame and I think Arsenal will really miss Torreira over the next few weeks yeah I think that's very much the case I mean you know you make the point about Man City coming up on on Wednesday Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment but in terms of how you set up your midfield um you know, he is probably the only naturally defensive midfielder in the squad. I know that Xhaka is somebody who plays deeper, but you wouldn't necessarily say that Ooh. defending is his strong point, uh, as we've seen uh, over the years since he, he joined the club. Ceballos, far more uh, a creative midfielder or, or certainly industrious and busy if he is playing deeper alongside Xhaka, but I don't know that he is a great tackler, etc., etc. You know, he works hard, but in terms of positioning, interceptions, just snapping into tackles, getting the game going again from deep positions. Torreira is the guy who's most naturally suited to do that. So, you know, it it does leave a little bit of a gap in the midfield lineup. I know we can talk about Genduzzi, we could talk about Joe Willock as options, but neither of them have the profile of of Torreira. No, I mean, I think your natural assumption is is sort of let's look for Genduzzi to step up, but... I'm a huge fan of Guendouzi. I think he's going to be a really fantastic player, but he is another, he is perhaps the only player under Arteta who has gone seriously off the boil. I mean, there was a good game against Bournemouth, but I just, I look at him and I don't, I don't really think I would trust him against a team like Manchester City, which is odd because last season he was phenomenal with Torreira against them, but it's, it's the sort of ill discipline. Um, and actually I think that's an issue with, quite a few of the, the midfielders when I say ill-discipline I don't just mean uh, sarcastically putting the uh, football on the, on the pitch I like um, that I'm sorry I liked that that's fantastic know. more of that please I think Arsenal should be a more sarcastic team um, <laughs> imagine but- the, the first the first club in history to have players suspended for, for relentless sarcasm <laughs> oh dear we're suspended oh no it's a yellow card <laughs> <laughs> Um, Sorry, continue, Vaganduzi, and your ill, the ill-disciplined midfield. He, I just you would you would fear him being able to hold his position consistently mm. in the way that when you have that Xhaka Torreira pivot, which I assume is what Arteta would have ended up going for at the Etihad, you know you've got two players there that will sit in front of the back four and they'll screen. I think Ganduzi sometimes gets carried away with the excitement of the game. Sabios. When he's played in that role, we've seen him do that a bit as well, although he does seem to love a tackle. I wonder if Joe Willock might be able to do something. I mean, you and I were on the pre-season tour, and mm. there was a lot of things we learned in pre-season that turned out to be completely wrong. But <laughs> Willock looked good deep. 
alongside Jacker. It was a really nice pairing that I remember. And Willock can, you know, he's strong. He's got, you know, he can put a leg in and win the ball back. Um, potentially that works. It's certainly, mm. these are all such imperfect options. Yeah, I, mean, I think the thing about Willock is you know, we're looking at him and we're wondering exactly what kind of player he is. And, you know, he's often played... Uh, in the Mesodozil position uh, as as that guy who can carry the ball and who can get forward. And, you know, um, there's a recency bias when you assess a player and he hasn't played particularly well in the second half of the season, but he did play well in the first half of the season and he certainly played well in preseason. And I know, you know, you've got to take that with a, a pinch of salt, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things, and I'm sure we talked about this when we were over there, was was the the willingness and the, the awareness from a defensive point of view. I can't remember whether it was the game against Bayern Munich in LA where he chased back and cleared a ball off the line, uh, you know, and showed real defensive awareness. I just wonder if, you know, you're going to Man City and you don't have a natural defensive midfielder. Can you go there with Ozil in the team or do you maybe make a midfield three in which someone like Joe Willock, if you can, if you can switch him back on to where he was in the first half of the season, I think could be a, a decent option. Yeah, I think that's a really good call. And I guess, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd be someone that would be like playing as a 10, but not really. Most of his work would be done in that defensive sphere. He is, he's one of the best pressers, even now, one of the best pressing players in the uh, in the, the club. And I mean, not getting too carried away with the West Ham game, I think that might be tougher than we expect. But again, be interesting to see when when they go to the Etihad, does he play those players that press really hard and energetically? Mm. Someone like Nketiah as well, who, again, it was against Portsmouth, but Arteta came out and he wasn't praising the goal scoring. It was the pressing that he was he was so enamoured with. I just think, I mean, if any team can pass around Arsenal's press, it's, it's Man City. But yeah. is it almost now... Is that energy just something that you need to substitute with Torreira gone out? And maybe it's the youngsters actually in whatever position that, that give you that in a way that your Xhaka's, your Ozil's, even Ceballos, as good as he's been, they just, they can't. It's not in their makeup. Whereas these youngsters run through brick walls even when they're playing poorly. Mm. You you know, we talk about West Ham, we're talking about Man City and, and obviously the late... Um scheduling of that fixture has I'm sure changed I mean maybe Arsenal were a, a bit more aware of it uh, but it does seem to have come very late obviously for fans that's an issue we'll, we'll we'll chat about that in a second but but in terms of his preparation for West Ham this weekend he's got to he's got to prepare for West Ham with Man City looming on the horizon whereas a few days ago he could prepare for West Ham with a week off you know uh, that that will potentially change what he might do against West Ham, the team selection. I know it's um, Saturday to Wednesday. Uh, I know it's a a reasonable uh, rest time. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the squad hasn't been played into the ground to the point where you're thinking, well, rotation in, in all the positions is absolutely necessary, but it does just sort of loom on the horizon a little bit when you're making your plans for, for the game uh, on Saturday. Yeah, and I think especially it seemed to me that that Arteta was a little bit stung by that Olympiacos game and maybe realised there that for whatever reason, actually, he does need to rotate a bit more than he did previously. Um, I think that that game you really saw that this team's leggy. They're being asked to do a lot more under Arteta than they were under Emery. So 
do you rotate a bit or do you know do you keep some of the players from monday like you know reese nelson and um uh, you know maybe pablo Mari even that mm-hmm. you think we won't need these players on wednesday but we want to keep that that squad a bit fresh i mean the trade-off is if you're playing man city on, on wednesday it's all the more important that you beat west ham united on on saturday because you're probably getting a best case scenario let's be realistic you get a point yeah the had so all the more important that you beat west ham it's it's a really fiddly one and um i'm sure we'll come to talk about this from a, a fan perspective but i think actually arteta might look at this and think uh if we hadn't scheduled it for next week god knows when we'd have scheduled it because city could well go deep in the uh in the champions league i mean i was told that basically the message from the premier league was if you uh, if you don't play this game on Wednesday, there's a possibility that we'll be able to do nothing about it, and you'll be playing four games on the final week of the season. So, wow. from that perspective, it's a bit better, slightly better uh, option in terms of keeping your squad fresh. Mm. But yeah, uh, of course, City involved in the FA Cup as well, which mm. um, you know also complicates matters. As are we, which is which is great, obviously. And I think you're right. I think it's I think it's go strong, go as strong as you can against West Ham, and then take stock. Uh, hopefully, after you've taken three points, and see what kind of a team you can put out against Man City. And I'm not saying it's like a free hit, but I think the expectation levels for for Arsenal getting a result against City are are pretty low, all things considered. You know. Um, based on what we've done there in in the last few years, yeah. Also, win win on uh, Saturday gets you to the magic forty point mark. So <laughs> finally, That's, ease those relegation fears. But isn't yeah, that I, mental. You know, we're sitting here and it's the fifth or sixth of March, and we're talking about getting to forty points. I know, it's, it, it's there's so many crazy little things that like you know we everyone talks about. Man City are just miles out of Liverpool's rearview window, you know, 22 points behind. Well, Arsenal are 20 points off Man City as well. It's, you know, City have had the one of their worst seasons in, in mm. forever. It's same with all these other teams as well. And Arsenal have resolutely failed to, to, to capitalise on the weakness of any of these teams. At a time when everyone went into the season thinking this is quite a good squad. I think, you know, we'll look back on this season and it'll be the tale of Sanye failing to act when he kind of needed to and failing to make that decisive call, um, Mm. not just in terms of sacking Emery, but getting Arteta in. Um, Almost, I can't really, I can't can't even really blame Unai Emery because surely he must have known, (laughs) he must have been thinking, why are you not sacking me? Um, Yeah, Maybe. Maybe. But it's you know that I would almost put Sanye as the man responsible for contriving a situation where Arsenal have eleven games to go where they can scarcely afford to drop any points if they're to if they're to get in the top four. It's it's a real disaster, mm. um, and I think it 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 comes down to the this higher ups more than it comes down I think to the the players and the yeah and the actual head coaches I I genuinely uh, and people say this as just a matter of course but I could not possibly agree with you more on that point and I, I think maybe when the season is over there's there's a, a need for some real reflection and you know we can all be critical of Unai Emery and I think we were and it's not to say the job that he did was good enough by any stretch of the imagination it wasn't but he's not the only one responsible um, let's just talk about the fixture and the, the inconvenience to fans and, and you know what you're saying about the Premier League putting pressure on Arsenal to, to play the game 
Um, you know, where where do you stand on? I don't want to say the blame game here, but but it is hugely inconvenient to fans. It's you know, it's another example of of match going fans being treated uh, as an afterthought, a kind of. Um, you know, the TV audience is, is far more important. Uh, you know, the broadcasters, they pay their money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it's the Premier League putting pressure on Arsenal. Is, is, was there more Arsenal could have done to say, no, this is not good enough. Our fans need more time because, you know, with a week to go before a game, it's hard to organize travel. It's expensive to organize travel and time mm. off work and, and all those things. I know the club are doing uh, subsidized coaches, I think £15 for a coach there and back uh, on the day of the game. Um, but, you know, where, where, where do you stand on this? Where do we where do we point the fingers of blame first? You see, I, I kind of I find it it's a little bit hard to to blame the clubs here because well it isn't it isn't you make that that billion dollar billion pound deal with Sky Sports mm. you know they the expectation becomes when Sky Sports say jump you say how high nothing else really matters and you know that that that's the reality the re- you think there are so many ways you could be a little bit more creative and intelligent shrewd with this i mean again this would have been super late notice but look at the sort of london derbies maybe that arsenal have in the in the coming weeks i know there's not a huge number but you know could there not be more flexibility where you say well we'll transplant that manchester city game uh, onto i don't know the day arsenal are playing watford we can swap them around we can have our evening game get that fixture in during the week and actually Pretty much every fan, every Arsenal fan or every Watford fan can get home nice and easy. It's not mm. a problem. But Sky Sports will say, well, we don't really want to show uh, Arsenal against Watford. We don't really want to show Arsenal against West Ham. We've paid for Arsenal Man City and we'll be showing Arsenal Man City. Yeah. I think the club are doing what they can. Uh, and there is also, you know, the, the reality that this is what happens when you have this this, all these extra cup competitions, um, you know, the Carabao Cup has, has messed up Arsenal's scheduling yet again. But yeah, I, it, it's so infuriating. I mean, you know, I, I feel the frustration of fans, and I'm just getting paid to go there. And you know, I, I obviously have had to sort out travel last minute and all that. But it's very different when you're not the one paying it. And I'm yeah. sure you don't want to get the coach. Um, to the Etihad if you can't get to the to Emirates for 12 o'clock on Wednesday it's a 200 pound trip if you're going by public transport it's, it's utterly ludicrous and I think I think really that, that I hope that supporters really focus their ire on the broadcasters in particular because you know they're the ones that, that allow so little flexibility and kind of the reality is when I speak to people at Arsenal about this because we had the same thing about the when they were looking at having a game on Christmas Eve the Arsenal-Liverpool game it oh, really yeah. was a case of Sky can almost turn around to to Arsenal and big teams and just sort of say, this is when you're playing this game. Um, you know, you're going to need to provide a super convincing argument for why not. Actually, the fans can make a real difference here um, by getting angry, by getting loud, making their voice heard on social media. But in the end, it's so hard, it's so hard for the clubs when Sky is the one that's paying all your wages. Very true, very true. He who pays the piper calls the shots and all that. Um, well, look, we'll see. Hopefully the Arsenal fans that go to Man City next week will 
we'll get something for the inconvenience uh, in terms of a performance uh, and a result. Um, we'll keep fingers crossed for West Ham, James, and uh, take three points, see what we can do against City next week. We leave it there. Thanks a million as always. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you to James. You can find him on Twitter at James Benj. That's at James Benj or writing about Arsenal for Football London this weekend. That rarest of things. A three o'clock kickoff on Saturday at home at the Emirates. We take on West Ham. There's no need for me to tell you what we uh, require from from this particular fixture. That's fairly obvious. What will be interesting is uh, to what kind of team Mikel Arteta picks and whether some of the players, the young players who impressed on Monday night against Portsmouth are given a chance uh, against uh, West Ham tomorrow. So Eddie Nketiah is obviously one who scored uh, on Monday night, but he started our last two Premier League games because of the form of Alexander Lacazette and because Mikel Arteta really wants to give him a chance. Has he done anything to lose his place in our Premier League side? No, not if we're going to play with that kind of a player at centre forward. Obviously, there are other things we could do, like play Aubameyang there and play Martinelli left. But if we're going to play with that kind of a, a centre forward, if you like, it's between him and Lacazette and, and Keddie is going to get the nod. Reese Nelson was very good as well, but it was just against Portsmouth and having been out for about, what, six weeks, you know, to play twice in a week might just be a bit much or, or to expect him to uh, to be able to play twice in a week or start twice in a week anyway he could definitely be an option from the bench Nicolas Pepe coming back in we have no Torreira of course from midfield so you're going to be looking at maybe Xhaka and Ceballos again as the uh, the uh, uh, the two players in there Mesut Ozil back he didn't play of course uh, in midweek neither did Aubameyang Mustafi so it will be interesting to see what Arteta does I think what James says is right we go out we win this game and then we see where we are and do what we need to do against Manchester City, see what sort of a team we can put out there to try and get some kind of a result. But, you know, this, if you were to pick one of the fixtures, is the most winnable of those two. I don't think any Arsenal fixture this season could be put down as, you know, a banker or a sure thing. Uh, We've seen too much go on this season to be in any way confident. But at home, you know, looking to bounce back from the Olympiacos disappointment. The players, well, some of the key players have had a good rest. They haven't played since last Thursday. You know, let's hope we can go out there, take those three points and then see where we are against City and see where it pushes, uh, hopefully pushes us up the table um, by the end of the weekend. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's my in-depth preview for the West Ham game. Just go and win it, please. James and I will be here on Monday doing an Arsecast Extra for you looking back on all the events of the weekend hopefully three points for Arsenal as ever thank you very much indeed for listening we will catch you on the next one until then take it easy cheers bye bye So, generic football manager in a press conference. The world is obviously uh, very concerned about the uh, the news this week. 
fairly shocking news. It's uh, spreading like wildfire across the globe. What, what do you think we need to do about this? Look, I don't know why you ask me, because I'm just a football manager. I'm not an expert in these things. Maybe you need to, uh, to think again about who it is you ask about questions like this. You know, do you ask me? I'm just a guy, a bald guy with, with bad shave. And there are people in the world who know much more about these things than me. They're called uh, experts and they have knowledge. Just because I am somebody who, who is a bit famous, you ask me, and I don't know the answer. I don't know. I, I, I can't tell you what we should do. All I know is that, uh, obviously, uh, I hope that for everybody's sake, the, uh, the Genesis reunion does not take place and the world can remain free as much as possible of Phil Collins' music. So after that, you know, I can't tell you no more. You need to go ask Top of the Pops. Go ask them. Go on. Go ask Top of the Pops. Uh, Top of the Pops is not a real person. I said go ask Top of the Pops. 